Well, if your Bibles are open, turn them to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9 is where we're picking up in our study of God's Word together this morning. Having finished up preaching verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the Gospel of Mark earlier this year, we're taking a break to spend some time in the Old Testament. So many excellent stories that are here, the recorded history of God's working through the people of Israel that reveals to us the character and nature of God in contrast to the character and nature of sinful men like Ahab, whom we just heard about his end in our scripture reading. And we're looking ahead to our next book study. Our plan is to begin the book of Revelation this fall. And so it'll be a great study for me to begin, one that I've been working up to my whole life, preparing by studying the prophets in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, preaching the Olivet Discourse. And so I think it's time to undertake the last major book that I have not yet preached from the pulpit that is on my list of very difficult books to preach. Romans was one, now time for Revelation. But this morning, we are in the book of Kings, Second Kings, as it's been divided in half, but really just one book talking about the kings of Israel from the time of Solomon until the time of the end of the southern kingdom at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And God slows down the story of this hundreds of years of kings to give us a lot of detail about what was happening during a pivotal moment in Israel's history. And that was the crisis that faced not only the people of Israel, but also the people of Judah, when Jezebel and Ahab sought to eliminate the true worship of God in God's nation and to replace the worship of Jehovah with the worship of Baal, who was the god of the Phoenicians, and Jezebel being a Phoenician princess marrying into the royal family in the north, brought that zeal for idolatry to a point where it was a tipping point. And this was either going to be the end of God's relationship with his people Israel, or he would conquer and prevail over the idol that was most pernicious in Israel's history, the idol of Baal. And so last week we were looking into Jehu and how he was part of God's plan together with Elisha and also the Syrian king Haziel to bring an end to the worship of Baal in Israel and also in the southern kingdom. And as we had in our scripture reading, you're reminded that the southern kingdom got swept up into this whole mess by a marriage alliance between Jehoshaphat, who was a good and godly king otherwise, and the house of Ahab and Jezebel. And we'll be finding out more about the consequences of that terrible partnership in today's message as well. So we're going to be picking up in 2 Kings chapter 9. This is the end of Baal worship part 2. We began the end last week. But this week we get to see the finished terminus of Baal worship as an official religion in Israel. And so 2 Kings chapter 9, we're going to begin there in verse 30. 2 Kings chapter 9 verse 30. After Jehu had terminated the son of Ahab, Joram, and the king of Judah, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoshaphat, then Jehu's next mission is to take care of that woman Jezebel. And that story continues then in chapter 9, verse 30. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. She'd heard that he has killed her son, that he has killed also Ahaziah, the southern king. She realizes what's coming next. If he's killed the king and he's coming here, well, he's going to kill the queen mother as well. So when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood splattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than her skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. 
When they came back and told him, he said, This is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. You see that the Bible is not always family-friendly reading. God expects us to be training up our children to be able to deal with some rather harsh realities that we find in life. And one of the harsh realities that we find in life is that the judgment of God, when it comes, it can be quite fierce. We speak about the love of God and the grace of God, and yet we must always teach our children that the fear of the Lord that the justice of God, that the wrath of God is terrible. Though he waits and delays long in his patience, once judgment is determined and his sword falls, well, it is not a pretty picture. And we have a not pretty picture here of the end of this cursed woman, Jezebel. Now, as we look at the beginning of the account here, we see that Jezebel doesn't try to run. She knows that is pointless. She recognizes that she's not going to be able to stand against Jehu, that everyone that is in her palace, everyone that's in Jezreel is going to recognize that he killed the king, that the queen mother is not somebody that you're going to want to protect. You don't want to go down with this ship. The course has already been set. And so she knows that she's doomed, but she faces her doom with her strength of spirit that she has displayed throughout her life. She makes herself ready. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head. She never loses her pride. She never lets go of her dignity, although God is going to take it away. She holds on to it as long as she can. But once Jehu is there and the eunuchs who are in the tower with Jezebel recognize the situation, she is cast out. She is cast down from a high place to the lowest place. God is able to take someone from the lowest place and raise them up to the highest place if he wants, like Daniel, a captive in the overthrow of Judah, a slave in a foreign country, and yet God elevated him to the highest place, just like Joseph, a slave in a foreign country, and God was able to raise him to the highest place in the kingdom underneath Pharaoh. And so God is also able to humble the proud. And take those who have ascended to the highest place or been born in the highest place and bring them down so that they receive no proper burial, so that they receive the most undignified death, being thrown down and trampled, eaten by dogs with no proper burial. And the scripture is not holding back on the humiliation that God deems this woman worthy of that it even talks about her corpse being as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel. So this is the evaluation of God of this woman who for a long time held sway, held power, had everyone kneeling and was greatly respected. And so you see that it's not so important to be honored and respected in the eyes of men, but it's more important to be honored and respected in the eyes of God That which is lowly in the world's sight is honored in God's sight. That which is highly honored in the world is despised by the Lord. Here's one key example of that eternal truth. Now, this end of Jezebel was prophesied. We can take a look at that there in 1 Kings chapter 21. Remember that 1 and 2 Kings were one book. They've only been divided for convenience sake because the scroll was so long. And in 1 Kings chapter 21... I want you to see where this prophecy about Jezebel's end was recorded so that you don't think that God is being capricious, you don't think that God is being too harsh on this woman. And in 1 Kings 21, not only do you have the condemnation of Jezebel, but it is in the context of Ahab's own condemnation. As we read last week, I'll remind you that Ahab was wicked through and through, And perhaps no episode in his life illustrates that better to a contemporary audience than his treatment of Naboth. That just because he wanted his field for convenience sake, he allowed his wife to judicially murder a man and his family through lies and deception, to abuse their power, to intimidate those who were in charge of the city, just so that they could have his field. This kind of oppression, this kind of murder, this kind of injustice 
this kind of disregard for human life who is created in the image and likeness of God, well, God takes that personally. And if you strike out at man, then you are striking out at the image of God. And so the scriptures provide the death penalty for murder. But who is there to provide death for the king and the queen? They are above the law. No one can touch them. Well, there is one who can. And here Elijah comes as his messenger and tells Ahab and Jezebel that God sees, God knows, and that God will execute justice. Ahab said to Elijah in verse 20, back in 1 Kings chapter 21, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And remember, as we read last week, Jehu was there when Elijah met Ahab in Naboth's vineyard. And he heard it. And now he's seeing the fulfillment of what he heard from the lips of God's messenger. This is what the Lord said. Now, one other thing I want us to examine here about the queen mother's end is that she refers to Jehu as Zimri. You see that in verse 31. Jehu enters the gate. She said, is it peace? You know, of course, she knows it's not peace. She knows he's come to kill her. And then she calls him Zimri, the murderer of your master. That is clever. That's very insightful on her part. What does she mean by calling Jehu Zimri? Well, turn back to 1 Kings chapter 16. In 1 Kings chapter 16, I want to show you verses 9 through 20. So we've got the beginning of the reign of Elah, the son of Baasha in Israel. And he reigned two years in verse 8. But his servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. Oh, this sounds familiar. Jehu, a commander, conspiring against the king. When he was at Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Tirzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. Notice verse 11. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on his throne, he struck down all the house of Baasha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha according to the word of the Lord which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet. This all sounds familiar. It's history repeating, right? Well, this was before. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God to Israel to anger with their idols. Now, the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Notice verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah, the shortest reign that any king in Israel ever had. Seven days was all he lasted. Because the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops who were encamped heard it. Zimri has conspired and has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from Gibbethon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. So when the queen mother looks out her window and she sees Jehu coming, she says, Is it peace, Zimri, murder of your master? Remember what happened to the last guy who murdered the king and killed all his family and tried to take over. He lasted seven days. We'll see how long you last, Jehu. So she gets her last little stab in there before she is humiliated. Proud, defiant, strong till the end, that was Jezebel. Now, that's only the beginning still of Jehu's purge. He's killed the king. 
He's killed the southern king. He's killed the queen mother. Let's see what he does next in chapter 10. Jehu slaughters Ahab's descendants is the title in the ESV version. Follow along as I read it out loud for us. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria. These could be sons and grandsons, all the family that he had. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria. Remember, he's in Jezreel, but the capital city is Samaria. And so while he's taking over in, in Jezreel, you've still got the royal household in Samaria. And there they've got their elders and the rulers of the city and the guardians of the sons of Ahab. And Jehu said, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons, select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. But they were exceedingly afraid, and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city, together with the elders and the guardians, sent to Jehu, saying, We are your servants, and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter, saying, If you are on my side, and if you are ready to obey me, Take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messenger came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning, when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab. For the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel, all his great men and his close friends and his priests, until he left him none remaining. We can stop there. So after the death of Jezebel, now we have the death of Ahab's sons, and not just that, but also his friends and those who are in Jezreel, the sons coming from Samaria. And when Jehu speaks to the people, in the morning, with the heads of the king's sons piled up in two piles, he tells them, this was my fault. I'm the one who killed the king. He takes full ownership of the fact that he has committed treason against Ahab and his household. But he challenges the people by saying, but I killed the king, but who killed all these of his sons? The sons' heads were just brought to the city. You know they were in Samaria, and now they're all here. And so he's asking them this question because he wants them to realize that this is something that God is doing, and that he's just one person that is a part of a bigger plan of what God is doing in this situation. People are coming together in order to bring an end to the reign of Jezebel and Ahab and his whole family. And so... The people are not guilty of treason, they're not guilty of murder, but he wants them to recognize that this overturning of Ahab's house is not an evil act, but it is something that is coming from the Lord, which is different than what was previously happening in some ways with Zimri, the murderer of his master. Situations are complex. They can have similarities, they can have differences, and here Jehu is acting very shrewdly, and he's also a very intimidating person. Can you imagine that you get a letter from the commander of the forces saying, all right, you guys are in charge of the royal household, and I killed the king, so what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to use your fortified city, you're supposed to use your chariots and horses, and you're supposed to choose the best of the king's sons, and you're supposed to fight for the house of Ahab, so let's fight. And he calls them to fight, and they have no will to fight against him so because this is from the Lord as opposed to Omri, who was selected by the army to kill Zimri. Now, that then brings us to chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. 
Jehu's purge is continuing here in chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Then he set out and he went to Samaria. Now he's, he's taking care of everything in Jezreel, which is a royal palace where many of the house of Ahab were. And he's, he's purged Jezreel of all of Ahab's close friends and priests and great men. Now he's going to Samaria. On the way, he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds. And Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Just so happened. They bumped into each other. And he said, who are you? You got people traveling through the land. They look rich. They look important. Who are you guys? What are you doing in Israel? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah. And we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. And they think this is a great thing. We've got this alliance with Israel. We've got the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel as queen back in our city. And we're here for the alliance between Ahaziah and the son of Ahab. And we heard he got wounded, so, you know, we're your friends and we're here. This family doesn't realize that everything's changed, just in a moment. And having been the friends, now they are the enemies. And so Jehu said, take them alive. And they must have been wondering, what? What's going on? And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Eked, 42 persons. And he spared none of them. As we mentioned last week, if you wed yourself to the wicked then you may get caught up in the judgment of God upon the wicked. Come out from among them, my people, and be separate. Be holy unto the Lord, so that you don't share in the judgment and the wrath of God that he's going to bring upon the wicked who are in this world. The more worldly the church becomes, the more we make alliances with those who are the enemies of God, then the more we are going to share in the judgment of God when he brings it upon his enemies. So fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Don't love those who hate the Lord. Seek their salvation. Speak the truth to them. But don't hitch your boat to their boat because their boat's going down and you don't want to go down with them. If only Jehoshaphat had had the wisdom to listen to the prophet and to see the danger in what he was doing in yoking himself to Ahab's house. That was his fatal mistake. Here, 42 of his sons and grandsons and relatives die because of God's judgment upon Ahab. Verse 15, it continues. He's killed the king. He's killed the queen. He's killed all the sons of Ahab. He's killed his friends and his counselors and advisors. He's on his way to finish the job in Samaria. When he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu says, if it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Verse 18. Then Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little. But Jehu will serve him much. Now, therefore, call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshipers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord here among you but only the worshipers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it. 
And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Not just the household of Ahab, not just the queen mother Jezebel, but Jehu's purge is the end of Baal worship in Israel. And here we see his cunning, here we see his ferocity. He is the man for this job, and he does it with great zeal. As he said to Jehonadab, come and see the zeal that I have for the Lord. Now, as you're reading about Jehonadab there in verses 15 and 23, you might wonder, why is he mentioned? Who is this guy? And that's why last week we had our scripture reading from Jeremiah chapter 35. And Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, becomes the ancestor by whom the Rechabites look back to as the one who they follow his teaching and his ways. We're not going to get into that this morning. I've got too many things to cover. But this passage and Jeremiah 35 are the only places where he's mentioned. And so God is tying together the history of this man here, very briefly, as a friend of Jehu, as a worshiper of the Lord, with his later commendation of his ancestors in Jeremiah 35. So interesting how God will lay something down in one place of Scripture so that he can build on it in another place of Scripture, and it all ties together. But that's not our focus this morning. Now, as Jehu ends Baal worship, we have the summary of that in verse 28, where it says, Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. However, just because Jehu had zeal against the worship of Baal, even though he hated the harlotries of Jezebel, doesn't mean that he was right with the Lord. Doesn't mean that he was righteous or that he was a good king. He did what God wanted him to do in bringing judgment upon Ahab and his household. However, he did not follow the Lord the way that he should have. And we can read about Jehu's folly here then in verses 29 and following. Notice the other side of Jehu's character. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But, verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So even though he's better, doesn't mean that he's good. And I want you to go back with me and examine the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and God's views of this back in 1 Kings chapter 12. So earlier in the book of Kings, back to 1 Kings chapter 12, and this is where Jeroboam sets up the golden calves in the northernmost part and the southernmost part of his domain, Bethel and Dan, and you get God's perspective on it here in 1 Kings chapter 12. Start in verse 25. Then Jeroboam, he's the first king of the northern kingdom. He's broken away the kingdom from David. He's taken ten tribes away from Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And he's establishing his own kingdom. He built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and he lived there. And then he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now, the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin. For the people went as far as Dan to be before one of the golden calves. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. And he did in Bethel sacrifices to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made, 
He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel. Notice that he had made, he had made, he had made, not that the Lord had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. One, Jeroboam, you're not a priest. Two, the Levites are the priests. You're appointing priests that are contrary to God's commandments and his instruction in the law. Three, God said you're going to worship at the place that I appoint. And I appointed Jerusalem as the place to worship. Four, God had told Jeroboam, if you walk in my ways, if you are careful to follow me the way that David was careful to follow me, then I will give you a dynasty in the house of Israel forever. God had given him a promise. What drove him to this sin of disobeying God's commandments and creating his own worship system? Well, if I let the people go up to Jerusalem, then they're going to leave me and I'll lose my kingdom and they'll go back to following after David's son. And God said, no, I'll make sure that doesn't happen. But he didn't trust in the Lord. He didn't trust in his promise. He said, I got to take care of this. I got to figure this out. He trusted in his own understanding and he didn't fear the Lord. And so he disobeyed God's commands. So much of disobedience comes from a lack of faith in God's promises. If you're having trouble obeying God, you might want to look at your faith. What promises of God are you failing to believe in? Jeroboam, the son of Nebat's sins, were so evil that God brought a complete end to his dynasty and to his household. Remember when the prophet told Ahab, I'm going to make your house like Jeroboam? Well, this is why God destroyed Jeroboam's house. We're in the 11th kingdom after Jeroboam, and every king that has followed after Jeroboam has continued this practice of the worship system that Jeroboam created with his priests that he created, his festival that he created. It was all contrary to God's instruction and God's word. They've all followed it. And now the people don't make any distinction in their mind any longer between worshiping God according to his word and worshiping God according to Jeroboam's religion. And what Jeroboam did when he created these golden calves, he's fusing together the worship of the Lord together with Middle Eastern religion. This was something the people of Israel did all the way back in Moses' time. That when Moses was gone, Aaron made the golden calf. So this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And so there was a, a fusing together of the pagan religion together with the worship of the Lord, and they thought they were being faithful to the Lord. And this is what happens in our world today. People don't trust in God. They don't, are not careful to follow his commandments. They trust in their own understanding. They think, well, I've got to do something to grow the church. I've got to do something to build the church. I've got to do something. And they just come up with their own ideas and their own plans, and they end up mixing together God's ways with the world's ways, and they think they've got something wonderful, and they think it's working, and God says, I hate it. I wish you'd just close the doors of those churches. You either worship God according to God's word or you're destroyed. As good as Jehu was in hating Jezebel and her sorceries and her idolatry, he was not careful to follow God. He didn't look into the word of God and say, you know what, we're not supposed to have priests who aren't Levites. Well, we've had priests who aren't Levites for generations. So what? Are we going to follow our traditions or are we going to follow the word of the Lord? And that's why true Christianity, true religion is always reforming. We're always going back to the word, examining what we're doing according to God's word. It doesn't matter if my grandfather did it. It doesn't matter if my great-grandfather did it. What matters is, what does God's word say? And if God's word doesn't say it, then get rid of it. If God's word tells you to do something and you're not doing it, start doing it. Now, Jehu, God commends him. He's a very interesting person. He's flawed. He doesn't get a permanent dynasty, but he does get the longest dynasty that any northern king had. There's four generations of kings. That's the longest that any northern king lasted because they all were involved with the sin of Jeroboam. And the only reason why Jehu's dynasty lasted longer was because of his zeal in destroying the worship of Baal. Now I want you to see a verse that ties into this in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Here we've got the words of Jesus Christ to the church. And what is written to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, which hopefully we'll get into this fall in more detail, 
are the words of the Spirit of Christ to the church in all ages, all times, and places. And so each letter includes this exhortation, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so here we are, and hopefully we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches in the 21st century in Nebraska. And so here's what he said to the church in the first century, and then from that you can know him and you can understand him and you can know what is he looking for in the church today. And he says this in verse 2 to the church in Ephesus. I know your works your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Well, Jehu couldn't bear with those who are evil either, right? But you have tested those who called themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. But don't be naive. Don't just believe somebody's an apostle. Don't believe just that somebody's a prophet. Don't believe somebody's a man of God, a teacher, just because he's self-appointed and he's got people who are listening to him. Test him. How do you test him? Is what he's saying according to God's word. And then he says this, verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. He removed Jehu's kingdom after the fourth generation. He will remove a church that is not faithful to him as well. I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But notice verse 6. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Jehu hated the works of Jezebel. That's good. That's good. We should hate the evil works that are done in the world today. I'm not saying we should have malice towards any person. We have goodwill. We have a desire for all to repent and come to know the Lord. But we hate the evil works that people do, and we expose them We speak against them out of love, not only for the people who are committing those evil works, but for everyone else so that they don't fall into those evil patterns of self-destruction and dishonoring, disregarding the Lord. But it's not enough just to hate the evil that's in the world. You know, there's a lot of people in America who hate a lot of the evil that's going on in America. You can find their YouTube channels, you can listen to them on the radio. Good! You hate some of the things that the bad people are doing. But, do you love the Lord? Are you going to God's word and being careful to do everything that God says? Or are you holding to your traditions? Jewish traditions, Catholic traditions, Protestant traditions, Mormon traditions. Yeah, it's good that you hate what these people are doing. But what about you? You're doing things the Lord hates too. Because you're holding to your traditions instead of the word of God. So let's not be that way. All right, back in Kings. So we've looked at Jehu's purge in chapters 9 and 10, and quickly we're going to look in chapter 11 about Athaliah's coup and Jehoiada's revival, his renewal of the southern kingdom. Remember, the southern kingdom has gotten swept up into this whole thing because of their foolish alliance with a dying house, a cursed house, enemies of God. And it says there in chapter 11, Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, She arose and destroyed all the royal family. That's quite a sentence. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land." Can you imagine the evil of this woman, her coup here in the first opening verses of the chapter? She's willing to kill her own sons and grandsons just so that she can have a short reign over the house of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. What kind of a monster is this? Well, she's the monster that's the daughter of Jezebel. Like mother, like daughter. Now imagine... You're living in Israel at this time. You're a Judean. You know the promises of God. You know that God has promised to seat a son of David on the throne of Judah forever. You know about the covenant that God gave to David's household through the prophets. And now you've discovered, you've heard, the news is being put out that Athaliah, this foreigner who married into the family, has killed the whole royal household and she didn't leave one baby left. Ahaziah died in the north. His family, a lot of them died when they were going to visit Whoever was left back in Jerusalem, now Athaliah has killed all of them. And you're thinking, wow, 
God's plan is done for. But I guess all those promises came to nothing. Because you don't know, just like Athaliah doesn't know, that there's a little baby hidden somewhere in Jerusalem. You know, our limited perspective, it's kind of like a blindness. We know so little. And there's going to be times where God's going to test us. He's going to allow events and things to go on around us, and we're going to look at that and we're going to say, well, looks like God lost. Looks like the promises have failed. Looks like the enemy has triumphed. And when you're tempted to trust in what you see and what you know, remember, you don't see and know all that much. And don't pretend that you see and know more than you do. You're kind of blind. But God sees and God knows. And God knows that there's this little baby that escaped, even when Athaliah doesn't know about it. And everyone's keeping it as the biggest secret in the kingdom. So, verse 4. But in the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karaites and of the guards and had them come in the house of the Lord. And he made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord. And he showed them the king's son. And he commanded them, this is the thing that you shall do. One third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate sewer and a third at the gate behind the guards, shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath, there's this changing of the guards, and so you'd have double the soldiers there for the temple force, and you guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king. You shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Only trusted people who are on the king's side are allowed to be in this group, and anyone else who tries to get close to the king is killed. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. The captains did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and the shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son, put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king! When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And Athaliah tore her clothes and cried, Treason! Treason! Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, Bring her out between the ranks, and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. Now there's a house of Baal in Jerusalem. And they tear it down. His altar and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord, and he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guard's house to the king's house, and he took a seat on the throne of the kings, seven-year-old king. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10 says, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Athaliah, the most wicked queen, dead, the city is rejoicing. Proverbs 28, verse 28 says, When the wicked rise, people hide themselves. Hide the king's son. The wicked Athaliah has risen. But when they perish, the righteous increase. Now, we see a lot of wisdom in Jehoiada's actions here. Jehoiada is a priest, a God-fearing man. He hates what Athaliah is doing, promoting the Baal worship. The temple's falling into disrepair. She's trying to turn the people away, just like Jezebel had tried to change the religion of the northern kingdom. Now she's trying to change the religion of the southern kingdom. And Jehoiada, he doesn't trust in the Lord in a foolish way by thinking, well, all we have to do is ask God to bless us, and then God will take care of it all. 
But instead, he recognizes that God has given him everything he needs in order to carry out this wonderful mission. That he's got loyal men. He's got the king's son. He's got the heart of the people. And by carefully using what he has, he is able to carry out the restoration of the kingdom to the line of David that had almost been completely destroyed. So you see that wisdom is using what God has given us in order to do what God wants us to do. God has given us everything we need. So wisdom is not pragmatism, where we just do whatever we think is going to work. Jehoiada still did everything according to God's word, but he also used the resources that God had given to him in order to protect the king at this crucial moment in his crowning. So you take proper precautions while also trusting in God to bless your plans that you have made in godly wisdom and fear. Now, notice Athaliah. Her response is tragically comic there in verse 14. There's no repentance on her part. There's no self-awareness on her part. She cries out treason. She who was guilty of the highest treason, murdering the true heirs of the kingdom, now sees herself as legitimate. I've killed everyone else who has got any claim to the crown, so my claim is the only one. And if you go against my claim, then you are a traitor against the people of Israel, says the greatest traitor of them all. And this raises, of course, important questions for us, living in all times and places. What makes someone a legitimate ruler? What determines legitimacy? Was this an act of treason, or was it the establishment of justice for someone who had killed her own grandchildren and had promoted idolatry against God's law in God's nation? You know, if it weren't for double standards, some people would have no standards at all. And we see that here in Athaliah. A couple of points here in closing. The purposes of God can never be defeated, even when it appears otherwise. And that all we have to do is be courageous, to be strong, to act according to God's word, and to use what God has given to us in whatever situation we find ourselves in, and trust God that his will, his purposes, will be accomplished. And what is God's will? What is God's purpose? Well, that Jesus Christ will reign over the entire earth and that we will reign with him in resurrection bodies for the duration of the millennium and then into the ages of the ages and the new heaven and the new earth that he has created. And in the meantime, God is calling people from all nations to belong to him, to become a part of God's church through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if we show no fear in the world, if we do everything according to God's word and use all the resources that God has given us with godly wisdom, then we will go from victory to victory and we cannot be defeated. Just like the Apostle Paul could not be defeated, just like the Lord Jesus Christ could not be defeated, just like Peter could not be defeated, we are invincible because of the power of Christ's resurrection. And so don't be like Jehu with partial obedience just hating the deeds of the wicked, but not being careful to do according to all that God has commanded you to do. Don't be like Athaliah, who thought that she could mock the Lord and that the wheels of justice would never catch up to her. An ancient saying bears repeating, the wheels of justice grind slowly, but they grind to powder. Though God is patient, when his patience is at its end, then he will destroy those who will not repent, who continue to oppose him. Two other points for discussion. I'm not going to get into the weeds on these, but I just want to throw them out for your thinking. As people in our time read this passage, they might get the idea that when you're reading about Jezebel and Athaliah, that the Bible hates women. And, of course, that's a, a false accusation that gets thrown at Christianity a lot, that it's misogynistic, and so somebody could trot out the example of, look how much the Bible writers hate Athaliah and Jezebel, how anti-woman. There's even a, a website called Jezebel uh, that people are promoting as a news source these days. And, and so, if the Bible only had stories about women like Jezebel and Athaliah, then perhaps you could say that the Bible is anti-woman. But the Bible doesn't just have stories about Athaliah and Jezebel. It has stories about Ruth. It has stories about Esther. It has stories about Mary, the mother of Jesus. You see, the Bible deals with reality, people as they are. 
And there are good and virtuous women that the Bible holds forth as heroes for us. And there are evil and villainous women that the Bible sets forth as examples not to follow. And it's the same with the men. There's the Judases in Scripture as well as the Pauls. The Bible is not anti-man, it's not anti-woman, it's anti-sin. And we must keep that very clear in our minds. We must remember that if there is such a thing as toxic masculinity, and there is, then there's also such a thing as toxic femininity, and there's also such a thing as healthy femininity, and there's also such a thing as healthy masculinity. Let's not get caught up in the world's foolishness on trying to create wars between men and women and trying to set the Bible on one side of that war. The Bible is pro-righteousness, pro-man and pro-woman in the greatest sense of the word. And then finally, a word about multiculturalism and tolerance. As the worshipers of Baal were slaughtered in the temple, that might lead some people to say, well, the Bible is promoting intolerance and that if Christians were in charge in our nation, then they would slaughter everyone who's not a Christian. How do we have any guarantee that Christians nowadays won't repeat mistakes that they made in the past and being intolerant towards other religions and putting to death or putting in jail or other legal penalties upon those who do not hold to their view of religion. Well, can't get into the weeds on that, but let me just say this. We are not a theocracy. We are a church. And in the New Covenant, the church is not called to put anyone to death. In the New Covenant, the church is called to excommunicate heretics and to make sure that those who are a part of our volunteer organization believe what the Lord of this organization has said, and that is the end of our intolerance. We do not tolerate false teaching within the church. We do not tolerate sin among those who proclaim to be following the Lord Jesus Christ, but we will execute church discipline, and we will make sure that those who are a part of God's family are walking according to God's instructions. But in the world, you're free to do what you want. If you want to rebel against God, if you want to live in sin, the church is not going to harm you in any way other than by lovingly telling you the truth that if you persist and continue in that direction, that the day of judgment will come. The day of judgment will come. And in the meantime, government's responsibility is to punish those who threaten life, liberty, and property. If you have false religion, you're free to practice your false religion. Any truly biblical government would recognize that. It's not the government's job to enforce correct doctrine in matters of personal belief. It is the government's job to enforce the moral order so that thieves and murderers do not run rampant. Hopefully we can be clear on that among all Christians and that you can help bring clarity as many Christians are confused in these areas of feminism and multiculturalism.